Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not, here we go. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Just a single tongue coming at you today. We're gonna do a. We're gonna finish up a little book we've been reading called Beyond Theology by Alan Watts. Got a couple of final thoughts on it. As I mentioned to you before, I'm really not able to finish uh, that in one episode and keep it a reasonable length, and I've been working on that. So I don't know what you guys may think. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the episodes that where I was doing um, opinion scholarship in the early days, some of those episodes were reliably two or three hours long, you know, Joe Rogan style, but just monologue. So I don't know, you know, what you might think about that. I've been trying to keep them a little bit more brief and digestible. And that one was a little over an hour, which I think is good. But if I would have went an hour and a half, two hours, maybe not. And so I want to kind of finish it off in episode number two. Um, like the first episode, I'm calling this one Beyond Theology after the book. Part two, I'm going to entitle Unity and Sacrifice. So... Before I jump in, I want to mention uh, the next thing I'm going to be doing. There's this little uh, book here. It's called um, Science in the Unseen World, and it's a lecture that was given by a scientist named Arthur Stanley Eddington in 1929. Um, this is just a you know book version. It's very short, but it's really packed full of good shit, and it's a little bit on a topic we used to cover a lot more that we haven't in, in recent um and recent episodes, and the topic is really about dualism. It's about mind and, and uh, body, you know, spirit and, and body, and um, what scientists have to say on the matter, and the interesting conversations that were being had in the early days of uh, the quantum revolution and the um, relativity revolution. So I'm going to get to that here in pretty short order. But today, we're going to finish up Beyond Theology. So just as a reminder, the first episode was out not long ago, so if you listen to it, you probably don't need a, an introduction, but I'll just say, again, what Alan Watts was doing in that book was talking about his deep knowledge of Christianity, because he wasn't you know, trained as a minister and worked as a minister, um, but also his deep knowledge in practicing Eastern religions, Buddhism and, and uh, Hinduism, and trying to, basically trying to do something like comparative religion, where he's talking about what the Hindus have, what they've earned in their religious tradition that's valuable, that's missing from Christianity. But also what Christianity offers, because it's unique in, in world religions, um, what it offers that Buddhism and Hinduism don't. And so there's been a little bit of a, you know, what he, he was calling his fantasy religion, but then moved into basically talking about what Christianity could be. 
what it could be that it's not today. It has a tremendous potential, as far as he's concerned, to unify Eastern and Western religions, to unify humanity in a manner of speaking, but to provide a path, a spiritual path, that we have some control over, that we can work towards, and that has a reliable um, payoff, a reliable goal. And it's very much like what Kyle and I were talking about when he started getting into Eastern Orthodox Christianity. We were talking about theosis as being a goal of spiritual practice. And that's kind of missing from Protestant uh, Christianity, maybe maybe missing from Catholicism as well. And, um, and so Alan Watts talks a little bit about that same sort of thing and how these religions can benefit from one another by using the, basically the fundamental exercise of, of the Christian faith and looking at it slightly differently, looking at it, interpreting it in a way that is unifying and accepting of those pieces of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism that are spiritually valuable. And so um, we're going to do a little bit of that today. We're going to talk, uh, kind of round this off and talk about that Um And I'll do my best to sum it up at the end. So let me just get in right into it. If you remember, in episode one, he talked a lot about um, identity. He talked a lot about this sort of mystical experience that people talk about, religious people, but also people who do psychedelics will often talk about having these sort of breakthrough mystical experiences where they have this experience of being one with the universe, um, feeling themselves to be akin to God, something like that. Um, this 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 feeling of interconnectedness, but also this remembering, this experience of remembering that this identity, that this experience that you're having, this this one with the universe experience, is what you always were and what you always will be, and and so I want to start there with a quote from the uh, latter half of the book, where Alan Watts describes a vision that he once had. So I don't know whether this was a fantasy, whether it was a dream, whether it was a psychedelic vision, I don't know. But it's to this point about our deepest identity being what he calls the ground of existence, or God. And he, he describes it like this. I become aware of eyes watching me from the outside and from the inside until everything is just one eye. I drop to the floor, shut my eyes and cover my head. Yet the eye comes at me from deep inside me. There isn't an inch for me to hide in. The only shred of myself that I can find is just the terror, the running away from the eye. There is nowhere for terror to go. And just then, I am the I. For the I which I see God, as Eckhart said, is the same I with which God sees me. So the hair standing up my arms, I don't know about you. Fuck, that's good. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind, but reading that, one thing that comes to my mind is the experience of having a bad trip. So a lot of people will talk about this. But also... Also, religious people, a lot, a lot of times from the Middle Ages, um, they would talk about um, having encounters with hell. Like you can remember Dante uh, descending into hell and seeing the seven circles and all of that sort of thing. And, um, and there's terror, you know, and, and this is something that's reminiscent of 
what a psychedelic experience can be. Can be it can be bad. And it usually hinges on set and setting and your psychology going into it. And so you can have a supernatural encounter, an encounter with with something beyond. And that can be a magical, awe-inspiring thing. Or with a flip of a switch, it can be terrible and 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 fearful beyond imagining. And what he's describing is something to me like both. So the focus on the eye is important because, because what that is a symbol of, and it always has been from time immemorial, this the you know, when it appears in mythology and in, in art, the eye is a symbol of consciousness, right? The the all-seeing eye, the eye of Horus, that which sees, you know, um, God is always watching, that sort of thing. So so the eye is associated with consciousness and with divinity. And in this vision, Alan Watts cannot escape from the eye. You know, he's always being watched. He can't hide from it, right? Just like Adam and Eve couldn't hide from God in the garden, right? That eye is always there watching. And it's terrible. He wants to get away, but he can't. And it starts to get very fearful, and he's afraid. He said he couldn't, he couldn't find anywhere for his terror because that's all he, he became, right? He, that's all he could identify with was this feeling of terror, and there was nowhere for the terror to hide. That's how he put it. It's amazing. And then right at the point where he thought he couldn't take it anymore, then he realized he was the eye. And so he embodies this thing that he was running from, this thing that he was afraid of, this thing that he, he was unconscious of being. And there's something like this that, that centers around this, this idea of identity that Alan talks about in the book. And then he uses this Meister Eckhart quote at the end. He says, For the eye which, with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. Right? So that eye, that consciousness, that seer, that knower behind his vision is what connects him to God. Because God is the thing that sees it is the thing that sees through his own eyes. Like he said in the last, in the part one of this uh, lecture, this, this episode, um, where he talked about God breathing himself into the clay form of Adam and then opening up his eyes and seeing the world through them. This is what he's describing in this vision. And I think it's amazing, so I wanted to share that with you. All right, so... This is what he means by identity. Our deepest identity is what is is the thing that we not not our ego, not our personality, not our name and our face and our preferences and our hopes and dreams, but the thing underneath all of that, the thing which which knows, the thing which experiences, the thing that you might call your soul or your spirit, something like that in religious language. That thing is God, and we share that, right? The thing that knows, the knower and seer within all things is the same. And that brings me to the first section, which I'm just going to call after the chapter where it comes from, This Is My Body. So for those who don't know, that's a very famous um, statement of Jesus during the Last Supper when he gives the bread uh, to be broken among his apostles. He says, this is my body. So that's, that's the theme here for the first bit. And Alan starts like this. He says, bread and wine are sacrificial. There is no bread without the grinding of wheat, and no wine without the crushing of grapes. This is the scandal of biological existence, that I cannot live without killing other creatures. 
so long as it is firmly felt that I am myself alone and that the creatures of the world are quite other than I. Destroying them to feed myself cannot be done without guilt. Okay, so we know he's talking, this is my body, he's talking about the communion. So in some way, we're talking about the body and blood of Jesus, which is the sacrifice in in Christianity, God sacrificing himself to his creation. So we can see that there's a sacrifice involved uh, that's being symbolized in the communion. But beyond that, he's saying everything that we eat and drink, right? what sustains life in all of its myriad ways is sacrificial. That there is no life without death. And that if our identity is firmly established as individual, as an individual ego, and I consider myself to be other than everything else, then everything that I have to kill to eat is like I'm taking, I'm robbing something from them. And we contrast this by the idea of what, what like we started with, talking about identity as something that unifies us. Right? If I have to kill to eat, but what I'm killing is, deep down, exactly the same as myself, then there's a little bit of a different spin on it, right? And so this is, this is the argument that we see from, uh, from people who are sensitive to, um, um, well, to the, to the planet, to the, to the woes of the planet, to, um, you know, the PETA, PETA-type people that are against eating meat, the vegans that are, that are, for moral reasons, think that death should be avoided and, and so forth. And there's, basically, Alan is agreeing that that is sort of the rational, um, compassionate response to the fact of death. If we're seeing the world through the lens of an ego, which most of us are, and, um, and so there's a sacrificial element in that, and there's guilt associated with that. We just have no choice but to carry with us. Then he says, remember that one of the main prohibitions of the Jewish law was the drinking of blood. Blood was felt to be the life essence, and thus the property of God alone. So that every animal killed for food had to have his throat slit and the blood poured upon the ground. The implication is that if only God may drink blood, to drink blood is to have a quality with God, and for that reason, eternal life. Okay, so you can see in the in the idea of the communion, in the context of the communion, that eating the blood and drink eating the, the body and drinking the blood is what is what allows Jesus to symbolically, if not literally, offer eternal life. Because to drink blood is to consume something that belongs to God, the essence of life itself that is God, to take that into yourself, to become God thereby, and to have eternal life. And he quotes Genesis here to make this clear. He says, Everything that liveth shall be meat for you, but the blood thereof shall ye not eat. That's from the ninth chapter of Genesis in the Old Testament. Then he says, but under the new covenant instituted by Jesus, the people are to have both the flesh and the blood. Okay, so the Old Testament said we were allowed to have the flesh but not the blood. The New Testament says we have both. And symbolically, not just any flesh and blood, right? But the flesh and blood of God itself. Right? Jesus is supposed to be God. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. 
So we're allowed to have blood now, according to, according to Christian dogma, according to the story, according to the gospel. And that means equality with God. Isn't that interesting? And he says, the full significance of remembrance, and so this is in the context of uh, Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me, which is again, talking about the communion. Um, when, when that word remembrance is used, Alan says, is not merely to, to call to mind an event. It's not just merely to remember, but to gather together what has been divided. So this goes back to the kind of Greek translation of that word. Remembrance means to gather together what has been divided. Thus, in remembrance of me is in recollection of the unity which exists before the breaking of the one into the many. Just like Jesus is breaking the bread to give to his his apostles. Originally, that was one piece of bread, so the symbol is the one becoming many. And the communion, taking the bread and the blood into you, is to, is to reassemble what has been divided, to have that oneness. Atonement is the word we use in Christianity, at one meant, to become one again, to become God again. Then Alan says, the very being of each creature is God abandoning himself. The sacrifice is no other than the slaying of all the living creatures by which living creatures live. And so you see this cycle, the cycle of life, of birth and death. So what does he mean when he says, the being of each creature is God abandoning himself? This goes back to that symbol that he talked about in the first part, where God breathes himself into the form of Adam and gives Adam life. So when God breathes himself into Adam, he's an infinite being who becomes finite. He abandons himself. He abandons his omnipotence. He abandons his uh, omniscience to become Adam. So this is a sacrificial act. God is giving something up. And this is what Alan's focusing on. He says, the sacrifice is no other than the slaying of all the living creatures by which living creatures live. He says, Jesus is saying that all flesh which is eaten is his flesh, and all blood which is shed is his blood. Do not therefore feel guilt for it anymore. The realization that all wheat and grapes, steak and fish, are, along with the human corpses, offered for worms and vultures, the innumerable disguises in which the Lord gives himself away. So there's something about that statement, and Alan, Alan Watts has a way of doing this, like in the first episode where he talks about he talks about Jesus being a freak, which he says in the context of, look, if we're supposed to be a, modeling ourselves after Jesus and being a, the perfect man, as Jesus was supposed to be, but we're, we don't have the advantage of being God like he was God. Isn't that, isn't that unfair? Doesn't that then make it hard for us to relate or associate ourselves with Jesus? Doesn't it make him a freak and not one of us? And so he has a way of saying insensitive things and delicate context that gets your attention, and this is one of them. He said, wheat and grapes, steak and fish are, along with the corpses offered for worms and vultures, the innumerable disguises in which the Lord gives himself away. 
So every creature who dies either becomes food for some other creature to continue to live or decomposes into the earth to become food for worms and vultures and microorganisms and everything else. And so you see everything is recycled. Everything is given. You know, the Lord giveth and he taketh away. The universe giveth and it taketh away. But where does it go? What does Newton tell us? Energy is not created or destroyed. It just changes from one form to another. You have this system, this closed loop, everything recycling. What is given and taken is given and taken to the one thing that is the universe, God itself. So you have to think about sacrifice in this way. And it's difficult. And it's supposed to be. All right, he says, the Hindu myth of the Lord's Maya... So for those who don't remember from the first episode, Maya is this Hindu concept of an illusion that the world, the universe, being, conscious reality, is an illusion that God exists within. God creates this illusion and then disappears into it so that it can exist the way it does, the way that we do. That's what, that's what Maya is. So let's start over. The Hindu myth of the Lord's Maya and of all beings existing by his self-sacrifice not only gives the Christian myth a new profundity, it presents a way of life in which the spiritual and the material are brought into one. So just like we talked about from Genesis, God breathing himself into the clay form of Adam, sacrificing his godhood in a manner of speaking to become a finite mortal being. This is very similar to the Hindu idea of Maya, the omnipotent, omnipresent, you know, Lord of creation, Brahman. Who, who, who goes into his own dream, his own illusion to animate it and live in that way, is sacrificing himself to himself. So all of reality, all of being, is God's self-sacrifice, something like that. Then he goes on, he says, So my body is God's, my mind is God's, my being itself is God's, all on loan to nothing and no one. But if I'm not here, I know who is. The thing is to see all faces as the masks of God, all characters as his roles. Interesting. So if we take this from a biblical perspective, you can see that God creates um, his Maya. He creates um, the heavens and the earth. He creates the clay form of Adam. And then he him, himself is breathed into it to bring it to life. So where is you and I in this, in this model? The body, the clay form, is God's. It's made of God's stuff, by, formed and crafted by God himself. The mind, the life, the, the life force, the spirit of Adam is also God, God having been breathed into it. His being, all of reality, is also God. So where, where are you and I in this picture? And that's, where, that's why he says, all on loan to nothing and to no one, right? I am not, as an ego, I am not in this picture. But if I'm not here, he says, I know who is. God, of course. So deep down, that, that's what we all are. That's what all of reality is. And he says that we have to learn to see all faces as the masks of God and all characters as his roles, and this reminds me of Mother Teresa. Um, if you guys know or are familiar with her uh, work, you know she would um, minister to uh, the poor and the sick um, in the in the worst conditions you know you can imagine. 
And when asked about that, she said something very like this, that she, she sees every encounter, you know, with the sick, with the elderly, with the disgusting, with the filthy, with the poor, with the, you know, all of the things that you might, that you might, you know, pull back from. She sees all of those instances as God, as an encounter with God, as an opportunity to have an experience of God. And so she could do that with love and, and grace and charity. And she felt like, like she was getting more than she was giving. And nobody would do what she did. No rational person would do what she did. But if you believed that all faces were the mask of God, you might, right? And Alan goes on, he says, As so many Christians seem to fear, this vision of God as all might be used as a rationalization for indulgence in total wickedness. Right? So imagine if we all believe that we were God, that might mean something like, if I'm God, I'll do whatever I want. Right? I'll do whatever I want because I'm God. And you can see how that might not be a good thing, right? And Alan says, these objections are a metaphysical filibuster subconsciously designed to postpone the great moment of awakening. This is you rationalizing yourself out of ever imagining that what you are might be identical with God. You don't want to believe that's true. You don't even want to entertain the idea. Because if I'm God and everyone's God, then we'll just go around doing whatever we want, taking what we want. But here's the thing. If you really believed, like we talked about in the example of Mother Teresa, that everything you encounter and experience is God, and you identify with that yourself, then you wouldn't do whatever you want to whoever you want. If those people that you're doing it to, you understand to be yourself, right? You're not going to harm yourself. You're not going to steal from yourself. You're not going to rape yourself. It wouldn't make any sense. And of course, this is what Jesus told us. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Why should you treat others as if they are yourself? Because they are. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the sacred taboo. And it begins like this. Alan says, If we regard being a Christian as a role being played by the Godhead, what will be the result of following the Christian way consistently? It commands the deliberate enactment of love and humility. When this commandment is presented to people who believe that they are independent egos, the rigorous attempt to obey will result in a paralysis which reveals the ego to be a fiction and leads to a new sense of identity. This has, in fact, been the experience of innumerable devout Christians. Okay, so what is he saying here? As a Christian, we're told to be Christ-like, and Christ was the perfect man. We're told to love our enemy as ourselves, to turn the other cheek, to do all kinds of things that are against our um, instincts to, to preserve our life and our dignity. You know, we're asked to submit in a way that is not natural, you might say, to live for others, to be a servant. And if we do that enough, 
if we take that seriously and live that way consistently, he's saying that that's difficult to do if when you imagine yourself to be an independent ego. It's like, woe is me. I'm always giving. I'm getting nothing in return. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm working myself to the bone. I'm, I'm caring for the sick. I'm giving away all of my things and possessions. Um, you know, eventually, all sorts of animosity starts to fill your spirit if you believe yourself to be your own self, an independent ego. And if you do that enough, he says, the rigorous attempt to obey will result in a paralysis, which reveals the ego to be a fiction. Right? If you're disciplined and you live that way and you don't allow yourself to be resentful, eventually you're going to be faced with the idea that this self that I feel so burdened by, that, I, that I'm unloading and giving of myself, you're, you're forced to realize that there's a connection between you and those that you're giving to. And that connection might be so close that the self, this idea of, of the self, your self, might actually include them. Maybe this is the reason why you're giving and giving and giving and serving and serving and serving. You're doing that so that you can see that what you're giving to and those that you are serving is not like a black hole or a garbage can that you're throwing all of your goodwill into and all of your effort and love and sweat and tears. It's actually going to, to someone, to something, just like you. Maybe identical to you. And he said it leads to a new sense of identity. It leads to an expanded sense of identity. And he said many devout Christians have felt this experience by following the Christian path. Then he says something interesting, and this is something that Kyle and I have talked about a lot, which I find also interesting. He says, the church has forced them to express the new sense of identity in terms consistent with official theology. Thus, the mystic attempting to describe his union with God has to split hairs most skillfully. Right? So what he means to say here is if you find yourself, if you've had a mystical experience and you find yourself identifying with God, you believe that all of the cosmos and yourself included is God. As a Christian, you can't say that. Remember, he said that in the first episode. One of the quotes was uh, that if a Christian says he, he discovered he's God, everyone's, everyone's going to assume he's insane. And that's exactly right. You can't say that. Why? Because the dogma of the church doesn't allow it. There's a separation between creator and creation that's important for reasons we talked about in the last episode. So if you're a Christian and you've had a mystical experience, you've had this awakening and this realization of what your deepest identity is, you can't describe it without walking on eggshells, without dancing around it. And this is what Colin and I talked about. We say things like to be God-like, to be Christ-like, to be in God's presence, to walk with God to participate in the energies of God, which is that latter one is the Orthodox Christian perspective. So we have to say things like that. We have to split hairs most skillfully so that we, we don't say, I am God, and get laughed off the stage. But somehow it's okay to say, I participate in the energies of God. It's like, well, I don't know what that means, but you're trying, obviously trying to preserve a distinction it's the only reason you're saying that. You're, you're, you have this word salad that's 
more palatable to the church, you know, in its in its in its historical teachings. And then he says, when God created the world, what he really said was, let there be light. This was the dividing of the light from the darkness. It is also the creation of identity, the line of boundary between creator and creation. And I think that's interesting. We've talked about this in, in prior episodes, that, that the act of creation, not just in Christianity, but in lots of ancient religious traditions, is seen as creation by separation, creation by division. So the idea is that everything that exists, or the potential for everything that could possibly ever be, exists in one thing, in one wholeness. And so when things are actually brought into being, they have to be separated off from that unity, from that oneness. And so light is separated from the darkness. Heaven is separated from the earth. Woman is separated from man. And this is, this is the, the, the symbology from the, the book of Genesis, of course. And what he's saying is, this, what is this symbolic of is actually the separation of creator from creation, right? It's the creation of identity. So I feel myself to be a self, to be an individual distinct thing once I've been separated off from the wholeness. Even though in truth, I belong to the wholeness. I am the wholeness. But as soon as I have an identity, as soon as I have this ego perspective, then it's the fall of man. It's the separation of me from God. It's, it's being expelled from the garden. So from a Hindu perspective, you can say that it was the creation of Maya that separates the many from the one. Being, this ego perspective, being a subject like we are. This is that original sin. This is the thing that, this is the Hindu Maya, the illusion that makes us think that we aren't what we are. And that brings me to my next section, which is called, Is It True? And Alan opens up like this. He says, I've always felt that the real root of the Christian concern, that God should be other, lies in a confusion about one, what one is oneself. The more we restrict the self to the faculty and contents of conscious attention, the more it must seem that there are whole areas beyond me, because the conscious ego does not control or produce those psychophysical processes upon which it depends. So let me stop there for a second. I think this is interesting because he says, look, the reason that we think of ourselves as other than God, it really boils down to we have this misconception about what our self means. What does it mean to be I? What does that mean? He says, we think that what that means is the faculty and contents of our consciousness. The, the fact that I have the ability to be conscious, to have experiences. And that all of the contents of those experiences, the world that I see, the memories that I have, all of that, that's what I am. That's what I means. And as long as that's the case, everything that's outside of my control or outside of my, you know, that my consciousness doesn't produce or control, that's something outside of me. That's something other. But then he goes on, he says, yet if the self can include areas outside of normal consciousness and its control, it would not be necessary to jump to the conclusion that my being is the work of someone else. 
So this is the idea of expanding your consciousness. Imagine it. In fact, I'll give you an example that comes to mind. I think it might have been, maybe it was Alan Watts, but somebody talked about having a psychedelic experience where they were looking at a uh, daffodil or a dandelion or something, and um, they, they were tripping, and then for a minute, they felt the sun, the heat of the sun, from the perspective of the flower. So for a moment, they weren't themselves in their own body. They were in the flower, experiencing what it was like to absorb the sun from the perspective of the flower. So you might call that a hallucination. You might call that, you know, you might dismiss that, and fair enough. But imagine that. Imagine just for a second, your consciousness expands beyond yourself, and you really know what it's like to be something else. And if that experience is possible, it, it destroys the idea of ego. It destroys the idea of what it means to be a self, to be an I. Because you think your, your I is restricted to your skin and your psyche. The moment you have an experience of something beyond that, you know that you, whatever you are, are more than you imagined you were. And I think that's a fundamentally important spiritual experience. All right, then he says this. Centuries before Western psychology invented the idea of the unconscious aspect of one's own mind, Indian and Chinese philosophers devised experiments whereby consciousness could be expanded to include areas entirely ignored by conscious attention. It was from such experiments that they derived their sense of unity and continuity between the depths of man, what they call Atman in Hinduism, and the depths of the universe, which they call Brahman. Then he says, the Jewish Christian Islamic world lacked this experimental approach, as their worldview is based not on experimental inquiry, but on scriptural revelation. That's interesting, right? Why seek the experience when the answer is given to you in an infallible black and white revelation in scripture? So when he's talking about Indian and Chinese philosophers experimenting with their, with their consciousness to expand their consciousness, he's talking about primarily meditation, but things like yoga and all of this sort of stuff that you hear about where, where folks have um, accounts of expanding their consciousness. These are things that aren't restricted to psychedelic experience or even, you know, traditional religious experience. People have these sorts of experiences through sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, deprivation of food. A lot of the uh, coming-of-age rituals that, are, that occurred in tribal societies, like in Native American groups and in sub-Saharan African groups, involved children going out and living in the wilderness um, until they have an experience like this, often brought about by sensory sleep and food de- deprivation. So um, meditation, breath work, things like this are means to having expanded experiences of consciousness. And they've been very, very useful for the spiritual development of Hindus and Buddhists. They've been able to come up with a realization that what they call themselves is greater than what's, re- what's limited to their skin and, and the contents of their personal consciousness. And the Jewish Christian Islamic worldview, he says, never really had this approach. Because why would you have this experimental approach if the revelation's been given to you in a book? Why would you seek a revelation when you already have a revelation? 
And this is one of Alan's critiques of Christianity, which I think is fair. All right, then he says, theologians, and by this he's talking about the Jews, Christians, and, and Muslims. He says, theologians are trying to say that we exist solely by the divine will, and yet are something quite other than that will. See, he says it is a perfectly schizophrenic idea of the cosmos. Brave, but also not quite brave enough. I, I like that. To say that to say that the cosmos was created by God, the place in which you exist was created by God. From what? Ex nihilo, from nothing, from God itself. That your body was was that your form was, was made by God, that your spirit, your life force, your, that what animates you is also God, that all of this is God, but you aren't? That's what he means when he says theologians try to say that we exist solely by the divine will, that we exist solely by God, through God, and yet we aren't God? Somehow? He says it's a perfectly schizophrenic idea of the cosmos. Brave, but not quite brave enough. Why is it not brave enough? Because we don't allow ourselves to say that if we exist solely by the divine will, that we must be that divine will. We don't let ourselves say that. And he says that's a mistake. It's not a mistake that the Buddhists or Hindus would make. It's a mistake that the Christians and Jews and Muslims make. We go far along the way, but not quite far enough. Then he says, a superior religion goes beyond theology. It turns towards the center. It investigates the inmost depths of man himself. Since it is here, we are in intimate contact, or rather in identity, with existence itself. Dependence on theological ideas and symbols is replaced by direct touch with a level of being which is simultaneously one's own and the being of all others. All right, so if we, we put our Hindu hat on or our Buddhist hat on, we imagine meditating in the way that they do. What they will often look for in their meditation is the, the quiet, the dark, the place where there, is, there are no contents of thought. There's just the reverberation of thought. There are no contents of consciousness. There's just the reflection of consciousness. And so you can imagine closing your eyes, uh, you know, there's no nothing to hear. There's nothing to see. There's there's no you. You manage to subdue your thoughts and fears and concerns. So you're not thinking. You're just sitting there in silence. And in that place where there's nothing, you realize that there isn't nothing. You're not alone exactly. In that empty place. You are still aware, even though there's nothing to be aware of. You're aware of the potential for awareness. You're aware of your own awareness. You're aware of being poised to have an experience, even though there aren't any experiences to be had. There's still the potential there to have that experience. And what that thing is there in the quiet, in the nothingness, in the void, what that thing is there that you're experiencing is God, and you have direct contact with it. You're experiencing it, but in a way, in a unique way, because you are it. 
You are the darkness. You are the potential for experience. It's not just that you're experiencing that potential. It is what you are. You actually identify with it. And you know that deep down, in the absence of anything, in the absence of a material world, in the absence of any experience, that's what you are. And that's what everything is. That's what the cosmos is. And it's not a matter of faith. You don't have to just, you don't have to just believe that's the case. You become that thing, and you know that's the case. And the last, the last word here, he says, one is not equating omniscience with conscious attention, or the Godhead with the ego. It is simply an assertion that man has not dropped into being from nowhere, but that his feeling of I is a dim and distorted sensation of that which eternally is. This is what one must come to by following the Christian way intently until one realizes the full absurdity of one's own basic assumptions about personal identity and responsibility. And that brings me to my conclusion. I find it compelling that after deeply studying the Christian and Hindu paths, Alan sees a special potential in the Christian faith. To be fair, he criticizes Christianity plenty and highlights where Hinduism expresses its advantages, and yet still he holds Christianity up. The common ground between the two he sees as the centrality of sacrifice, where Hinduism sees all of being as a kind of ritual sacrifice a sacrifice of Brahman to Brahman. Christianity asserts the sacrifice of Creator to its creation as the key to unity with Him. Take these as poetic images if you will, but we see a common truth playing out all around us all the time. Atoms are continuously harvesting electrons from one another, fields always interacting losing what they were to become something new in perpetuity. Biological life is lost to sustain life in other forms. The sun forever gifting the solar system with its radiation, slowly dying as it does so. Sacrifice so complete, so unending, to be somehow fundamental, leads unavoidably to an understanding beyond any one self. When we see just how deeply interconnected all of reality is, and how nothing is possible without the universe sacrificing of itself, we are confronted with a paradox of identity. Am I me, or am I the universe? Is there even a difference? And it is exactly here, at this philosophical impasse, where Alan sees the great awakening power of the Christian path. Because uniquely in Christianity, we are asked to love and live and act for others. We are asked, as a matter of faith, to become a servant, to lose ourselves in a manner of speaking, and to be as Christ was. And seeking that perfection, which is forever out of reach, we have no choice but to eventually submit to it. And when we do, we come to the truth, which the Hindus are taught, 
but which cannot really be taught. We come to the truth that our ego, what we think of as our self, is woefully incomplete and longing. Our identity must merge with the identity of others. We must empty ourselves of self in order to truly become a servant. And then we can understand what it means to be a servant, to give of yourself. We see that sacrifice is a gift of self to self, just as Jesus' death on the cross. We see that we are giving and taking from the same source, that we are one in God and always have been. It is exactly this quest, what Alan called the path of consciousness, that parallels the meditative exercises of the Hindus. Both seek to understand our deepest self. Both are a quest for ultimate identity, that is, a quest for God. But the Christian path constitutes an advantage. Alan is the first to point out that the Christian could benefit from the type of spiritual experimentation exercised by the Hindus. But there is something unique about the Christian path of consciousness. What makes the difference seems to be a confrontation of one's identity from the outside rather than strictly from within, and an active pursuit of voluntary ego death, where a Hindu looks within to seek God. A Christian must learn to find God in the world, even in his enemy. Love your enemy as yourself, we're told. Where a Hindu explores the eternity of his soul, hoping to find Brahman and recognize it, a Christian is also asked to sacrifice himself until there is nothing left. Nothing but the reality of God shining back, like the hope at the bottom of Pandora's box. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.